All right, join me in Genesis chapter 40 this morning, if you will. Genesis chapter 40. It's the lamb who was slain. We started looking at that that in Revelation chapter 5 this morning. It's just, it's beautiful how Genesis, Revelation, the music we sing, it all ties together. And it's all directed toward and centered on that one person. Uh, the, the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so uh, I hope even from the book of Genesis, you're going to see that this morning. You're going to be pushed toward Christ. Uh, if you didn't come in thinking that way, hopefully by the time you leave, you will be thinking that way. And I hope that not just during this Christmas season, but every day of your life, Christ is your focus. That's the way the Father wants it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, all shining the spotlight on the Son for, for all of our praise and worship to go to Him. So again, we hope that happens from the Word of God. So join me in a word of prayer. Uh, we'll ask for the Lord's help in that endeavor and uh, that the Holy Spirit will work in each of our hearts to show us what He wants us to know this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank You for bringing us here this morning. Um, you know each person. Uh, you have a plan for each one of us. And evidently, Your plan was for us to be here this morning gathered around Your Word with Your people, uh, looking for, looking at Jesus Christ. So we thank You for music that has already helped to get us started in that direction, music that helps us to express what we believe about you, how we feel about you, the focus of our attention, the focus of our affections, the focus of our desire. I love when Simeon called Jesus, as he was holding him in his arms, called him the desire of the nations. We are part of those nations. And we're so glad that you chose to send your gospel message from Israel out to the rest of the nations, and you brought it to us. You told us the truth. You told us the great news of what you chose to do and you are doing through the life and the death and the resurrection of your Son, not just for Jewish people, but for Gentile people as well. We thank you for the Scripture reading this morning and uh, for all of that detail about what you've accomplished, the results of what you did through Christ for all of your people. And to know that nothing can separate us from your love that rests in Jesus Christ. Nothing. And we know there are are many people, there are many beings that would try to separate us from that love. or, Or to make us feel like you don't love us. But none of that can work. You have made that promise. You have secured your promises. You are pouring out the blessings of your promises on your people. And that will last forever. So thank you so much for that truth. Now help me as I preach. I pray that you'll keep my mind clear. I pray that my words will be clear as well, and more than anything else, accurate, uh, true to what you've already revealed. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in the hearts of each person here this morning, whether already a believer or maybe here this morning not yet believing. But your Holy Spirit, being omnipotent and sovereign, can work in both of those hearts for the same reason to point our attention to Jesus Christ and direct all of our our trust and faith in him. So, Father, you have your way with all of us this morning for the glory of your Son. And I pray it all all in his name. Amen. So we come to Genesis chapter 40, and basically the saga of Joseph's life continues. It's kind of like a a spellbinding miniseries. And the authors have, have written a script that keeps us captivated and surprises us and shocks us with each episode, but it leaves us um, eager for the next episode when we get to see more of what's coming for the main character. It's kind of how it's been with Joseph, except the huge difference that this is not fiction. This was not scripted. This was not written by writers, human writers, uh, and this is not carried out by actors giving us some false reality. This is reality. It is real. It happened, and therefore, we should pay the greatest attention to it. This boy, as a boy, Joseph as a boy, was sold by his brothers. You remember that? Who then made it look like he had been killed by a wild animal and eaten. And they did that to cover their own tracks. They did that to be able to tell their father something so that he wouldn't suspect that they had done it. And he believed that. Unfortunately, he believed that and and grieved his son until the day that he saw him once again. Then Joseph was sold again, not just the first time by his brothers, but he was sold again by those traitors, and he was sold to uh, one of 
uh, Pharaoh's officers by the name of Potiphar. And we know that Joseph then went on to serve as a slave in Potiphar's house. And he did that very faithfully, faithfully all the way until that day when Potiphar's wife lied about him and made a very, very egregious accusation against him, for which his master, her husband, had Joseph thrown into prison. And that's where we left Joseph last week, in prison. And I would have to say, so far, what we've seen about the life of Joseph, you could probably pick one word to describe his life to this point in time. You might say, injustice. You might say, victim. Either one of those two words would be a very good description of what we've read in the last couple of chapters about this this young man, Joseph. And we're talking about a man who at this point in time is probably somewhere around 20 years old. So this is is not a 40, 50, 60-year-old mature man. This is someone who's just getting into manhood at this point in time. So as bad as things have been for Joseph in his life so far, there is a silver lining in that black cloud of Joseph's life. We saw it last week twice in the scripture where Moses wrote, the Lord was with Joseph. Yeah, it's bad. It's been bad. Seems to be getting worse to some degree, but the Lord was with Joseph. As different people, not just one, but different people repeatedly used and abused Joseph, Jehovah the God of Joseph's father and Joseph's grandfather and Joseph's great-grandfather was keeping his promises to those men by blessing Joseph everywhere he went. In his father's house, in Potiphar's house, now in the prison, God is with Joseph and he is blessing Joseph. And God's active presence in Joseph's life has, has produced results. Results that, that people could see. Joseph could see it. <clears throat> Everyone around him could see it. Started with Joseph's attitude. Here's a man who through all of this seemed to be content. He was compliant. He was faithful to whoever it was who was owning him or exercising control over him at this moment in time. He was diligent with everything he was given to do, no matter who gave it to him to do it. God's active presence also showed up in the results of everything that Joseph was doing. Joseph was unusually successful. And whoever he was enslaved to or controlled by or imprisoned by at the moment, Joseph was making those men prosperous, very prosperous in everything that Joseph was doing there. And it was so much so that whether it was Potiphar or whether it was the warden of the prison, Because of how prosperous Joseph was making them, they just kept giving Joseph more and more responsibility while he was with them. And the latest example of this is the warden who ended up making Joseph kind of like an assistant superintendent over all the other prisoners in the prison. Which brings us to chapter 40 and verse 1. And look at that. I'll I'll read it for you to get us started. Moses writes this, It came to pass after these things that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. So, time period after these things. So, how long after these things? We don't know. There's there's no way to tell from that verse. There's no way really to pin it down from the the events of this chapter. We don't know the exact time frame. It's just been some period of time that has elapsed since Joseph was was starting to be given all this responsibility in the prison. The warden says, oh, you're you're doing great for me. You just take care of all the prisoners. Some period after that decision, these two other characters show up. I just read about them in verse 1. You've got the butler and the baker. So very quickly, let's just make sure we understand who these guys were. We hear butler, and probably some of your minds go to Downton Abbey. Uh, British butlers. That's what comes to our mind, first of all, because, you know, we came from those people. Not that any of us has a butler, but anyway, we, we, we recognize that kind of service. So a British butler is the guy who answers the door for the big house, right? Anybody who shows up, the butler's the one that meets them at the front door and finds out who they are and then directs them the right way. He's the one who dresses the lord of the house every day. Or if he's coming in to change clothes to go to a different event, the butler is there dressing, laying out his clothes and making sure he is dressed for that particular occasion. 
A British butler was usually the one who acted as the manager over all the other servants in the house. And the British butler was the one who pretty much acted like, like the maitre d'. He was the guy that was making sure the food and the drink was served to the master of the house and, and all of his family and his guests. That is a British butler. This is not a British butler. This is an Egyptian butler. And when you look at the, the responsibilities of an Egyptian butler, it was basically that last service that I mentioned, Mater D. We will know it more um, closely from Scripture as the cupbearer. Heard of that before? So the, the Egyptian butler was the one who was responsible for making sure the food, the drink, the wine was served to the master and his family and the guests every time they were going to have a meal, okay? That was this butler, his responsibility, okay? The other man, the baker, there's no secret to that. The baker was the cook, right? So the cooks were the ones who, who, who made sure the food was prepared to be delivered, to the master of the house and his family and his guests. The cooks were the ones who made the recipes. They're the ones who went and purchased all the ingredients. Then they mixed the ingredients. They baked the food so that it could be delivered to the master. Baker, butler, okay? Now, we are dealing with a baker and a butler in a king's house, which means these probably weren't the only two. In a house that great, there were so many people to be taken care of, so many family members, so many guests coming and going all the time. There were probably several butlers and several bakers, okay? But verse 2 tells us something more specifically about these two guys. Look at verse 2. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and chief baker. So that narrows it down, right? We, we know a little bit more about these two guys. They're both officers. They're both chiefs among all the butlers and all the bakers. Now, those two words, officer and chief, actually come from the same root. And that word is talking about someone who is at the highest rank in their position and someone who is devoted to their work. That, that's who these two guys were, okay? It's also interesting to note that a lot of officers in the nation of Egypt, a lot of officers, a lot of chiefs in their particular field were eunuchs, either involuntarily or voluntarily. And we know the reason. They, they did not want to be tempted or distracted by females. These were men who were dedicated to their job. They were dedicated to their service to the king. This was 24-7. This is who they were, not just what they did as a job or an occupation. This is who they were. These two men would qualify here. This is their classification, okay? So that tells us these two men, this butler and baker, they did not get into this position quickly or it didn't happen casually. These two guys had been so serious about their work for so long that Pharaoh ended up trusting them in that spot. They were put there probably after a long period of time, after being watched by many people, watched by Pharaoh himself, until he was willing to trust these two guys in that particular spot, those two spots. And that gives us a little bit of a hint or a little bit of an idea in how they ended up in this prison. I mean, you have to ask yourself, what did it take for Pharaoh to get that angry with both of these two particular officers at the same time? And we, we read in verse 1, they had offended their Lord. Well, what did that look like? How did they tick off Pharaoh? What was it that made him so mad? He said, both of you are out of here at the same time. And, and our minds can start to speculate. We can imagine, okay, they're in that spot. They may have done this. I mean, had, had, they, had they served a very disappointing state dinner, state, S-T-A-T-E dinner at one point in time? They brought out meat that was undercooked, and all the wine glasses had spots all over them. And that made Pharaoh so mad, he said, I'm not dealing with this anymore. You're out of here. Is that what it was? Doubtful. I mean, that could irritate someone like this. But to make him so mad that he gets rid of these two chief officers in this, these particular positions, because think about how much trouble it would be for Pharaoh to replace them. He's got to trust someone else to put in that same position. 
And, and a king would not take that very lightly. So I don't think it was something as simple as just a spoiled special dinner one night. Probably what had happened here was an assassination attempt, or at least an assassination plot. Or at least Pharaoh suspected these two were up to something, or maybe they had been accused of this by someone else. Whatever exactly happened, it was so serious and it was so credible that Pharaoh ended up so angry that he got rid of both of these guys at the same time. Which again, is not a light matter. That's a big deal. You get rid of your chief butler and your chief baker at the same time. Well, now you've got to find a new chief butler and a new chief baker. And if these last two plotted your assassination, somebody else might do that as well. So who do I trust? Big deal what he did here. So where did they end up? Well, look at verse 3. So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. So now they're not butler and baker anymore. Now they're fellow inmates with Joseph. And I can guarantee you this is not the place that either of those three men, butler, baker, or Joseph, ever expected to find themselves. But it's very interesting now that the relationship that develops between these three men in that place. Look at verse 4. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them. So they were in custody for a while. How did Joseph treat these two guys? He served them. Now that is very interesting. Make a note of that. We're coming back to it in just a little bit, okay? Joseph served these two guys. Now, how long were they there? It says they were in custody for a while. For a while doesn't tell us much. It just means a time period. Probably not one day, probably days, maybe weeks, maybe months, okay? But they were there in that prison along with Joseph for a period of time. And after that period of time, something very unusual happened. Look at verse 5. Then the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, had a dream, both of them, each man's dream in one night and each man's dream with its own interpretation. And Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody of his Lord's house, saying, why do you look so sad today? And they said to him, we each had a dream and there is no interpreter of it. Okay, so just stop there for a second. Okay, so remember, Joseph is in charge of all the other inmates in the prison. And so he probably makes his rounds each morning to check on all the inmates to make sure things are happening as they're supposed to and they're not happening as they're not supposed to. And when he comes to these two guys, they are noticeably sad. Now, I know you've got different translations out there this morning. You may have a word other than sad, and there probably should be a word other than sad here because that one's not clear enough about what Joseph saw in both of these guys. Think clouds billowing up and building and getting thicker and higher and blacker until a thunderstorm breaks loose. Think a, a boiling pot. So that water has been heated, and it's now agitated, and it's bubbling, and it's about to spill out. That is the, that is the picture behind this word that is translated as sad. That's both of these men. Not one, not the butler, but not the baker, not the baker, but not the butler. Both of these guys were showing this very same thing. They had each had a dream, and now they can't shake that dream. I don't know whether it had woken them up in the middle of the night and they couldn't get back to sleep. Or just when they woke up in the morning, that dream was still on their mind and they, they can't quit thinking about it. But the point is, both of them were very upset over the dream that they had had, each had had. Both of them were worried about what they had dreamed because no one can explain it to them. Evidently, they haven't been able to figure it out on their own. And evidently, they didn't think there was anybody else in that prison who could explain it to them. Because in verse 8, they said, there is no interpreter of it. Had they already, had they talked to each other? Had they shared their dream with each other? And both of them said, well, I have no idea what your dream is about. 
Had they already talked to, some, talked to some of the other inmates at this point and, and shared their dream with one, two, three other inmates, and those inmates were left scratching their heads saying, I have no idea what that's all about. Either way, they have come to the conclusion that we can't figure out what this dream means. And so what was Joseph's response? Did he just say, oh, good grief, it was a dream. Dreams never make sense. They're always weird. Nobody ever knows what a dream is about. Just give it some time. By lunchtime, you'll forget all about that dream. Was that Joseph's response when they told him about this? And when he saw how sad they were? No, look at the end of verse 8. So Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. Don't interpretations belong to God? And if Joseph said interpretations belong to God, what else is he insinuating? The dreams belong to God too. If, if God can tell the meaning of the dream, then God evidently was the one who had given the dream to begin with. And Joseph is asking this like a rhetorical question. Don't interpretations belong to God? He's, he's asking them the question as if they already know the answer and he knows the answer as well. God is the one who tells what dreams mean. But what God? Which God? Who's God? Because there's a big difference between Joseph and this baker and butler religiously. If you were an Egyptian, you probably believed in many gods. Even Pharaoh was considered to be one of the, the divine beings, one of the gods. But Joseph, from what we have seen about him last week, and we're going to see this week as well, it seems like at this point in time, Joseph is a believer in one God, Jehovah, the God of his father and grandfather and great-grandfather, the one who made covenant promises to their family and descendants down through the years. seems like Joseph has a different God, big G, then these guys would have lots of little G's, right? So why is Joseph asking them this question? I mean, what's he getting at in saying, isn't God the one who interprets dreams? Well, maybe Joseph is saying to them, we all believe our gods are the ones who give and, and interpret our dreams, and yet here you are, so sad, because you had a dream and there's no interpretation. You can't find an, interpreta an interpreter or an interpretation anywhere. And in my mind, I kind of think Mount Carmel here. I think about Elijah up on Mount Carmel giving the, the prophets of Baal every opportunity to, to, to reveal their God and for their God to show up and, and show that he's real and he has power. And what happened? They never showed up because they're non-existent. And then he showed that God is the real God. It's almost like that's happening here. It's almost like Joseph is, is, is saying things like, okay, your gods had a chance to prove themselves. They failed, so now tell me your dreams, please, and I'll reveal my God. I'll show you that my God is the real God because he will be the interpreter of these dreams. And evidently, they went for it. Evidently, these two guys were, were so bothered by their dreams that they were willing to consider a strange God just to get some relief in their minds after they woke up that morning. So what happened? Well, the butler went first. Look at verse 9. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Behold, in my, in my dream a vine was before me, and in the vine were three branches. It was as though it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it, the three branches are three days. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. All right? So, so the butler recounts the details of his dream, and Joseph had the interpretation right away. The butler, at this point in time, was dejected, right? He was sad. He was downcast. You can just picture him with his head hanging low. He's, he's depressed at this point in time. But Joseph tells him, that's all going to change in three days. The, the butler's life was about to be like that grapevine in spring and summer. You know, when you see buds, and then they turn into blossoms, and then that turns into fruit, grapes, lots of grapes. Your life is going to take on that form within, within three days. 
Pharaoh would lift up the butler's head. He would raise him up, lift up his head, raise him up out of his depression and take him out of prison, restoring him to his former position. And that's not just back in the house as a servant again with a new opportunity to impress Pharaoh all all over again and work his way back up. No, not that. Back in his original position. In three days, you'll be by Pharaoh's side again. You'll be handing him his drink cup. You'll be serving the platter of food to him just like you were when he got angry at you. Okay, That was the interpretation. Now, don't you wonder how the butler reacted? I mean, it sounds good. That's, that's kind of what you hope for, and maybe he had been afraid to dream of anything like that, but now he's heard from Joseph this interpretation, and that sounds great, but should he believe it? I mean, he doesn't know much about this Joseph fellow. He's just another guy here in prison that just happens to be in charge of all the other inmates, but he, he doesn't know much about this Joseph, and he knows nothing about this Joseph's God. So should he put any stock in that interpretation? Should he start getting his hopes up? Should he start packing his bags? Three days, I'm out of here. I better start getting ready for this right now. What, 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 do you, what should he do? What, how do you think he felt about this? Well, we're not told that. We just go straight on to the baker. And imagine the baker. He, maybe he, I think he's probably been sitting there listening to this interpretation. So he probably liked what he, what he just heard. And so it's like, okay, do me now. So look at verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I also was in my dream, and there were three white baskets on my head. In the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. Yeah, right. Imagine being the baker. What was going through his mind now? You sit and you tell the dream, then you're sitting there eagerly anticipating for some promising interpretation like your buddy the butler had just received from Joseph, but the baker's interpretation was very different, wasn't it? Oh, his head would be lifted up also, but not in the same way as the butler's. Imagine hearing Pharaoh's going to hang you by your neck. Oh, your head's hanging down. Your head will be lifted up, but there will be a rope around it, and and Pharaoh will hang you by your neck until you are dead. And then birds are going to come and eat at your rotting body, just like people used to eat your baked goods out of the baskets that were served to Pharaoh and all of his guests. That's a very different interpretation than the butler got, right? So should he trust Joseph? I mean, I'm sure he didn't want to believe this interpretation. So did he just blow it off? Or did the baker get really nervous after that point in time? I mean, just full of anxiety and worried about what was to come next. And and what do you think the baker's relationship with Joseph was like for the next three days? This guy who had just delivered this message to you, he's in charge of you, so he's coming by all the time to check on you. You, you think the, the baker was giving Joseph the cold shoulder at that point? Or catch him and saying, don't you want to try again? Maybe you got it wrong the first time. Maybe if I tell you the dream again, you'll come up with a different interpretation this time. You just wonder what that interaction was like for the next few days. Well, the only way for both of those men and Joseph to know if that interpretation was really from Joseph's God was to see what happened in their lives. And they weren't going to have to wait long, were they? How long? Three days. For both of them, Joseph made it very clear that these dreams will be fulfilled exactly as I say within three days. So what happened? Look at verse 20. Now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. Then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Joseph was right. He got it right. Butler was restored to his position again. He's now the the butler again by Pharaoh's side, trusted, serving him 24-7. What about the baker? 
executed, hanged by the neck. And both of them, it happened for them to them on the third day. Now, as I was looking at this this past week, I was thinking, now what was going on outside the prison after the baker and the butler were thrown into prison? We don't know how long they stayed there before they had the dream and before Joseph interpreted the dream, but they were there for some time period. What was going on outside the prison at that point in time? Had there been an investigation into the accusations against the baker and the butler? There, there was an investigation and a trial, and then there was a verdict, and the verdict was just carried out on that third day after Joseph's interpretation? Is that what had happened on the outside that Joseph and those two guys didn't know about? Or was this just a personal arbitrary decision by Pharaoh, this is the way I want to celebrate my birthday? I don't particularly like that baker, I don't trust him, but I really am fond of the butler. So for a gift to myself on my birthday, I'm going to put the butler back where he was and I'm going to kill the baker. It wasn't as simple as that. Did God divinely, supernaturally move Pharaoh to make this decision and carry it out on that particular day? I don't know. Sorry. We don't know what steps took place, how many steps took place in the human realm that led up to these results. We don't know that. The big question is, how did Joseph know the results ahead of time? That's really the question here, right? How did Joseph know exactly what was going to take place in three days? I mean, if you're like me, my dreams don't make any sense. I mean, Valerie and I tell each other our dreams. She dreams all the time. I don't dream as often, but when we do, a lot of times we'll tell each, other our, each other's dreams, and it's like, what in the world is that all about? I mean, you can tell this is just our subconscious mind when the rest of our body is turned off and we're asleep. Subconscious mind is just reaching back for memories of people and events, things we're afraid of, things we got happy about, desires that we have, throwing all that in a pot and stirring it all up and giving us a story in our sleep, right? I mean, that, sometimes you can figure out where the individual pieces came from, but the story's ridiculous. And there's never a, cha- never a time when I think, that's a message from somebody. Something, something's going on here, and, and that was so real that I think something's about to happen soon, and I got to find out the interpretation of this dream. That is never the case, right? But here, Joseph heard their dreams, and immediately he knew that they were a message from God, and he knew what that message was. He told both of them exactly what would happen and exactly when, and that is exactly what happened and exactly when it happened. And what was Joseph's explanation for this? We heard it back in verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God. Joseph knew what was going to take place. He knew how it was going to take place. He knew where this information was going to come from. Don't interpretations belong to God? I mean, these two guys didn't know what their dreams meant, and evidently no one else could tell them when Joseph got to them, which means none of the Egyptian gods were there. None of the Egyptian gods were helping. None of the Egyptian gods had done what their their followers expected them to be able to do. But Joseph... He gave the exact interpretation of those dreams and the results, the events, backed up the interpretation that he had given, which means what? God gave it to him, which means what? His God is real. I mean, this is just another support. We're seeing it on page after page. We're seeing it playing out in the lives of different people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph. We are seeing events that prove The evidence is right there in front of us that God, Jehovah, is the real God. And this is further proof that that God was there with Joseph in that prison. This is another example of how that God was making Joseph a successful man, making everything that he did to prosper in his hand. And folks, it's one of the applications I want us to get this morning. I'll just put a couple up here on the screen for you. This is how God treats his people. I mean, see that. When you're reading chapter 39, you're reading chapter 40, and we go on to 41 and 42 next week, and looking back into Abraham's life, notice that what God is doing for these people 
is an illustration of how God treats all of his people. He stays with them, even in the worst places. And he's always actively working for his people and working through his people, and he's doing it for their benefit and for the benefit of many other people as well. Now, as you're listening to me, a red flag should have just gone up. God's working for his people? Really? Wait a minute. How was all of this for Joseph's good? I mean, think about it. All he did was pass along interpretations to other people about their dreams and what was going to happen in their lives. Joseph got nothing out of this. Nothing changed for Joseph. Three days later, when the butler was standing next to Pharaoh, restored to his position, out of jail, happy doing his job again, where was Joseph? Still in prison. Same place he was when the butler had the dream. Same place he was when when he gave the interpretation to the butler. Joseph is still in prison. So how is this for Joseph's good? Well, Joseph hoped this would turn out for his good. Look at verses... uh, Verses 14 and 15. I skipped these. But look at verse 14. Joseph is speaking to the butler here, and he says, But remember me when it is well with you. I've given you this great interpretation. It's going to be well with you. Remember me when it is well with you, and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and also I've done nothing here that they should put me in this dungeon. So obviously Joseph hoped that this would turn out for his benefit soon. I mean, Joseph understood that God didn't have to give those dreams to those men, and they didn't have to share those dreams with him, and God didn't have to give him the interpretations of those dreams. God could have just let all of this play out on the outside of the prison without ever warning anyone. Just on that day, they show up and they execute the baker and they put the butler back in his position. Why? What happened to lead up to that? No one knew. I mean, they weren't privy to any of that stuff. God could have done it that way, but he didn't. Why did God? give those dreams to those men and have them explain them to, 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 to Joseph and then give the interpretations to Joseph. Why? Well, from where Joseph sits, maybe God did all of that, gave the dream, gave Joseph the interpretation, so the butler would be impressed by Joseph and remember Joseph. And then when he's back next to Pharaoh, he would remember Joseph and use that relationship with Pharaoh to get justice for Joseph and get freedom for just for Joseph evidently that's what Joseph hoped God was up to for his benefit was he right well look at verse 23 what happened to Joseph verse 23 after the butler is back with Pharaoh yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph but forgot him so does that mean Joseph got his hopes up for nothing Does that mean none of this was actually for Joseph's benefit? This was just for the butler? Joseph was forgotten after all of that? Never. You just have to be patient, right? Because there's a truth about God I want you to hear. Maybe you know this already, but I think we need to hear it all the time. God is always with his people. Don't ever doubt that. God is always working for his people. But God is not always working for the benefits we want or in the time frame that we expect. God is like a a chess master. God makes one move right now to set up the result that he wants several moves later. He's always doing that. And we're going to see that in glorious fashion next week in chapter 41, which is actually two years later. For Joseph. I mean, Joseph is is waiting two years for what he hoped might happen for benefits from all that God is doing for others through him. Two years later, Joseph starts to see those, but he's got to wait two years to see them. And on top of what I just said about God, we have to remember God is always working to do what he's already promised. What has God promised? What has God promised that should be affecting Joseph at this point in time? Well, put a finger in Genesis chapter 40. Turn back to Genesis chapter 15 with me very quickly. And let me just remind you of something that we saw many weeks ago. Genesis chapter 
15. What had God promised that might be coming into play now for Joseph? Genesis chapter 15, here you have Abraham worried because he and Sarah still don't have a child, which means they have no heir. If Abraham is to die, all of his stuff will not be passed down to a child, to a son. All he's got is is a servant in his house, one of his closest servants. Everything will just have to go to him because Abraham and Sarah have no kids yet. And he's worried about that. He's afraid because of that as well. And God shows up to Abraham, speaks to him to calm him down, and reiterates these covenant promises that he had already been given to him him prior to that. Look at chapter 15 and verses 4 and 5. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, Abram, saying, This one, this servant, shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Drop down to verse 13. Let me share a little bit more of these promises. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also, the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions." Where is Joseph in Genesis chapter 40? Where is he? He is a stranger in a land that is not his. Here is a descendant of Abraham, the one who received that promise in Genesis chapter 15. You're going to have so many descendants you can't even count them, and your descendants are going to end up in a a land that is not theirs. They'll be a stranger in a land that's not theirs. We come to Genesis chapter 40, we find Joseph, and he is a stranger in a land that is not his. And as we go forward, when we get to a certain place, we're going we're to soon see how God turned Abraham's descendants into a great nation in a strange land, and he did it through this Joseph. People who will be enslaved, and then they will, they will find great blessings from God, and they will end up being taken out of that land with great possessions. We're going to see all of that play out. But how does it start? With Joseph being taken down to Egypt, being placed in Potiphar's house, and then being placed in prison, and then being given responsibility in that prison, and then meeting this baker and butler, and then hearing these dreams, and then giving the interpretation. All of this is leading to the fulfillment of the promises that I just read to you in Genesis chapter 15. Joseph understands this, I think. That God is always working to do what he's already promised. And whether we understand what God is doing or not, and whether it's convenient for us or not, God is always providentially doing in our lives what he's already promised to someone somewhere in time past. And folks, if you are living by faith in Joseph's God, if you are believing his God is the only God, and if you're trusting him to make everything right for you through his son, This is what you can expect from him. Same thing we're seeing him do for Joseph. Same thing. Not the ability to interpret dreams. Don't get all excited about that. I mean, don't think we're going the Pentecostal route and all of a sudden you're going to start doing miraculous things. No, 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 not that. But you can expect God's constant presence with you. You can expect God's active mercy on you. You can expect God to be providentially controlling all the pieces around you at all times for your good and the good of others. And folks, you can hold on to that very tightly when things are very hard. Even when you feel like a slave or a prisoner. When people you help or people who are supposed to help you actually use you and abuse you or forget about you. Even when it seems like God has forgotten about you, you can hold on to the truth that he has not. He is with you, and he is being actively merciful in your life. He is providentially controlling everything that's happening around you and to you for your benefit and for the good of others. Hold on to that when you're in really hard times. 
So let me ask you, do you have that kind of confidence in God? You. Just think about yourself, not your spouse next to you, not other people around you. Do you have that kind of confidence in God, that he is that, he is always doing that for you? If not, you've just seen more evidence this morning that this God is real, and this God is faithful to his people. This is the time to start believing in God that way. This is the time to start loving him and trusting in him for that kind of peace. Don't wait. Don't waffle. Don't put it off till a later date. Don't say, well, well, I'll come back to that, or I'll I'll question that more in the future. You've seen the evidence, the truth, the facts are right in front of you. Start believing in that God today. Rather than hoping in things that really can give you no hope, start believing in this God today for this kind of very real assurance. God will treat me just like he treated Joseph in this situation. Now, there's something else I want to show you before we wrap up this chapter and get ready for next week. As we look at Joseph in chapter 40, once again, we are, in, we are seeing in Joseph what kind of life that kind of faith produces. What's it look like when someone has that kind of confidence in God? Well, let me take you back to verse 4. I told you to hold on to something that we would be back and get back to it. Verse 4, go back there with me again. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, with the butler and the baker, and he served them. Joseph served the butler. Joseph served the baker in prison. And if you're interested, this is the very same word that Moses used back in chapter 39 for Joseph's relationship with Potiphar. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. When Joseph was enslaved in Potiphar's house, Joseph served Potiphar. When Joseph was imprisoned and the baker and butler were put under his charge, Joseph served the baker and the butler. This word is always talking about a menial, lowly person ministering to, attending, waiting on, serving someone who has a higher rank than they do. Always. That's what this word is saying. So you have to ask the question, were the baker and butler greater than Joseph in prison? And the answer is no. No one's greater than anybody else in prison. Prison is a great equalizer. Prison puts everybody on the same level. In there, all three of those men, Joseph, butler, baker, they were all accused criminals. They were all prisoners of the king. They were all at the mercy of the king. Whatever Pharaoh decided to do with any one of them, no matter where they had come from, Whether they were Hebrew or Egyptian, they were a slave, or they had been some of Potiphar's chief officers, or or Pharaoh's chief officers, that didn't make any difference. They were at the mercy of the king to decide what was going to happen with their lives, all three of them. And actually, in prison, Joseph would have been the one who was above the other three, right? Because it was the warden who had put Joseph in charge of all of the other inmates. Yet, that's not how Joseph viewed those two guys which must mean that's not how Joseph viewed himself. Joseph served those two guys as though they were greater, which means he must have seen himself as being lesser than them. Which is very remarkable for a person like Joseph. I mean, you think about him. Here's Joseph falsely imprisoned. And I would expect Joseph to be thinking something like, I don't belong here. I'm not guilty like all of these other common criminals, wicked, evil, self-serving people. I deserve better than this. I would expect Joseph to be thinking that way, but he wasn't. This is not normal for someone who has been given authority over everyone else. Again, Joseph is the one who has been put in charge of all the other inmates. And so I would think Joseph would be thinking, I'm in charge here. Butler, you should be serving me. Baker, you should be serving me. That's what would come naturally, but that wasn't Joseph. And here's this man who had had dreams of greatness in his past. Remember that? Joseph should be thinking, wait a second. The sun and the moon and the stars are supposed to be bowing to me at some point in time, and yet I got to serve you, criminals? That's what a normal person would think, but that wasn't Joseph. And this is also someone who has tasted superiority in his own household in the past, remember? You could see Joseph saying, "Uh, wait a minute, I am the favorite of all of Israel's descendants. 
And Israel is God's chosen man, God's chosen people. And I'm the favorite out of all of them. Why in the world do I have to serve a baker and a butler in prison if that's the case for me? No, not Joseph. Out of Joseph, once again, we are seeing a genuine humility. This is not fake. He really does see the baker and butler as being above him, worthy of his service, and him lesser than them. Out of Joseph here, we are seeing a stunning peace and contentment. I mean, this is awful. He does not belong in prison. Don't know how long he's been there at that point in time, but one day is is more than he deserves. How long am I going to be here? Is it going to get worse than this? Will I be let out at any point in time? Will I ever get to go home to my people in the land of, of Canaan? And yet, you don't see him struggling that way. You don't see him bitter. You don't see him plotting an escape or plotting against the people who, who put him in here. All you see is a, a, a very surprising peace and contentment. We are seeing out of Joseph a view of himself and a view of other people and a view of circumstances that is not natural. This is not inborn. This doesn't come with human birth. It's not even taught by humans. We don't raise our children to feel this way. We raise our children that when someone steps on you, you pay them back. And you do everything you can to rise to the top of the ladder. You want to be successful. And even if if that costs other people around you, this is the, the message that we humans send to our kids. But that's not Joseph. With Joseph, it's the exact opposite of that. The way he looks at himself and the way he looks at other people, the way he, he views his circumstances, it's, it's so unnatural. And you say, how? I mean, how did Joseph get to this point? Well, I am more and more convinced that what we're going to hear from Joseph later on, when, when, he is re, when he is, I won't say reconciled, but when he's brought back together with his brothers, what he tells his brothers then, later on, I think he's already seeing it here. You want to see it? Turn to chapter 50, verse 19. Genesis chapter 50, verse 19. This is Joseph expressing later on what he believes, specifically what he believes about God. Genesis chapter 50, look at verse 19. Joseph said to his brothers, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Another rhetorical question. But as for you, You meant evil against me. That's why you wanted to kill me, decided not to, threw me in the hole, sold me to Ishmaelite traitors. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. This is what Joseph believes. I mean, this is is his heart. This is in the deep recesses of the place where he has his convictions, comes to his conclusions. I mean, those beliefs that dictate viewpoints and attitudes and words and actions, this is what Joseph knows. He knows that whatever men are doing around him, whatever men are doing to him, it is God who is ordering and controlling the events of his life and all lives. God calls the shots, not us. And Joseph believes that whatever God is doing is right, and it is good for his people and for many others, whether Joseph understands what he's doing at the moment or not, and whether it is easy for Joseph at this moment or not. Joseph believes wholeheartedly that God is sovereign, and God is right, and God is good, and Joseph rests in that sovereignty. He willingly submits to that sovereignty. He doesn't have to try to get himself out of this at all, at all means. He doesn't buck it. He doesn't complain about it. He accepts it with peace and contentment, serving others in the midst of what's happening to it. And that's what we're seeing here. He's not fighting. He's not trying to find some backdoor escape hatch out of prison. He's not paying someone to go get a camel and hook a chain to the, to the bars and pull the bars out of the cell that he's in. We don't see any of that out of Joseph. All we see him doing is serving the other inmates. And he can do that. He can put himself below the other inmates without fear of what's going to happen to him. Why? Because he knows God is sovereign and right and good over the affairs of his life. 
even when Joseph did try to make a way out of prison. Remember that? Butler, when you get out of here, when you get back to Pharaoh, remember me and see if Pharaoh will get me out of here. Even when he did that, even when he tried to make a way out of the prison, notice he did not do it at the expense of his kindness. He didn't bargain with the butler. He didn't say, oh, I've got an interpretation for you, and it's really good. And if you promise me that you'll put a good word in with me for with a good word in for me with Pharaoh, I'll go ahead and tell you the interpretation. That's not what he did, did he? No. He had no self-serving motive behind his kindness to the butler. He served the butler first, then asked for his favor afterward. And folks, that's what real integrity looks like. And it was tied to Joseph's faith in the sovereign, righteous goodness of God, or the righteous, good sovereignty of God, however you want to describe that. Joseph was able to do that. Go ahead and be good to the butler. Okay, ask for his favor. Hopefully he'll give it to you. But even if he doesn't, go ahead and serve him. Go ahead and be kind to him because you can trust whatever it is God is doing and God will do in the future, you can trust him. He's sovereign. He's right. He's good in the lives of his people. And let me remind you of this, too. I shared this last week. I'll bring it up once again. On the timeline, we are not to the Mosaic Law yet. God has not given a law to his people saying, live by these rules. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. What's the summary of the Mosaic Law? Two tenets, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number two, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Before that's ever given to God's people, we're seeing Joseph living it out. He's, that's, that's exactly what he's doing, right? And what is so strange is people don't naturally do that, especially in times of hardship, especially when they're going through great trials and they're beat down and they're losing things and, and, and they're, they're experiencing great disappointments in their life. People don't naturally act that way. In those situations, people naturally blame God and try to take care of self first. That's normal. That's natural. This kind of genuine, unconditional love for God and men that we're seeing out of Joseph in prison, that is a prime evidence of a supernatural work of God in Joseph's heart. It is prime evidence of a gift of divine faith being given to Joseph. So let me ask you this again. Do you see this in yourself? As we look at Joseph, as we follow his life, as we see him interacting with people, as we see this humility and this peace and this contentment, this willingness to view and treat everybody else as being greater and above him and himself below, and he'll just serve those people. No matter what it results in for himself, he'll just serve those people. Do you see that in yourself? Which leads to another question, and that's this. Do we, do I? Do you really believe that God is sovereign? He rules over absolutely everything. He controls what's happening around me and that he is righteous always and good always. Do you really believe that? If so, if you really do, then we will love him and we'll trust him and we will serve others without selfish ambition or without fears that we're going to be taken advantage of, or that no one's going to take care of us. I'll never get what's coming to me. No, no, no. We serve other people without those kinds of fears and without those selfish motivations. We just leave the direction of our life and the outcome of our lives to him, the one who is sovereign and righteous and good at all times. If that's you, if you say, well, Pastor Mark, as I listen to this, it's not perfect. I can't say that I'm always that way, but I do see those evidences in my life, then you need to praise God. You need to be thanking God all the time because you are that way purely by His grace. Those characteristics are evidence that His Holy Spirit is at work in you. You don't have to turn there. You already know these verses. But can I remind you of Galatians chapter 5, what Paul said to the church in Galatia? This is what he said to them. Um, if I can find it. Verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit. So if the Spirit is present, He will be producing fruit. If you have an apple tree, 
How do you know it's alive? Apple tree, apples are on it, right? If the Spirit is present, he produces fruit. What's that fruit look like? Well, this is what Paul said to the church at Galatia. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Who do you hear? Joseph? I mean, we're seeing all that out of Joseph. And my point to you is that if you are truly trusting in God, you, you know he's going to make everything right for me through his son, Jesus Christ. And I believe he's sovereign. He, he controls everything for my good, the good of other people around me. If that's you, if that's your faith in him, this kind of fruit shows up. And if you're seeing this kind of fruit, it's coming from God. He didn't have to do it. He didn't have to work in your life that way. Joseph had 11 other brothers. We don't see this kind of fruit out of them very often at all, right? But we're seeing out of Joseph. Why? Because God was at work in his heart. Do you see that in your own life? You see these characteristics that are, they're not, they're not normal. They're not natural. They're not human, especially in hardship. So they must be coming from God. If you see it, praise God. That is the glory of his grace. If you don't see it, if you're honest enough to say, Pastor Mark, I would claim to be a Christian, but as I look back over my life just the past week, that's not what I see. It's, the harder things get, the more disgruntled I am, the more bitter I am, the more insecure I am. I'm blaming people around me. I'm fighting to get out of it. I'm trying to manipulate my life to, to make things better. I don't, I don't rest at where God has me right now. I don't trust that he's doing the best for me and there's benefit in this for me and benefit for other people. If you're honest enough to say that, then my advice to you is look closely at what we're seeing. Week after week, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now Joseph. Look at what we're seeing in their lives and believe what we're seeing. Start believing that God is real. He shows up to Abraham. He shows up to Isaac. He shows up to Jacob. He's showing up now in the life of Joseph. He's real. He's proving it over and over again. Start believing that right now. Start believing he's sovereign. He's the one that calls the shots, not men. God controls what's happening in this world. He either allows it or he makes it happen, but he's working all things according to the counsel of his own will. Believe that. He's proving it in their lives. Believe that God is always right. He doesn't do wrong. He doesn't make mistakes. Believe that God is always present with his people, no matter where they are. If they're enslaved in someone else's house, if they're an inmate when they don't deserve to be put in prison, God's still there. He has not left his people. He's always present. He's always good to them. He's always doing good through them to other people. And that makes him worthy, worthy of your love, worthy of your trust, worthy of your submission. Start believing right now what the scriptures are telling you for that peace that Joseph had in his own life. To be able to have joy even when times are terrible. And to be able to have absolute assurance for the future because the future is laid out by God for the benefit of all of his people. Start believing now. Don't wait any longer. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you as always for the truth that you've given us, for the record of the history of your chosen people, Israel, individual lives, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now Joseph. You're giving us so much detail and not just a tale about those men, but through the details about those men, we see details about you. We are seeing all we need to see to know that you are the real God. The Egyptian gods had a chance to show up. Those two guys could have gotten interpretations from other Egyptians in the prison around them if those gods were real, but they, they weren't. They weren't there. They didn't speak up. They didn't give answers to their people. That was you through your man, Joseph. And so again, we, we just see the fact that you are alive, you are real, you are present with your people, you are sovereignly ordering the details around their lives so that you, will, you can do more good for them and more good through them. You're right, you're good, you're sovereign. We thank you for all the evidence to support that faith that you've given to us. So Father, I pray, 
from what we've seen this morning, I pray that your people are excited about you. Not just excited about you, even more grounded in faith in you. We know you. We know how you act. We know what to expect. Maybe this week you're going to order some very difficult circumstances in some of our lives. I hate to even say that out loud, but it may happen. Times might get very hard. Various types of trials might come rushing at us. We might be in situations this week that we can't get ourselves out of. Hard, deep problems. But from what we've seen this morning, we can know you haven't left us. You haven't forgotten us. You are right there with us. You ordained those trials for good for us and good for other people. Nothing you are doing is wrong. Nothing you are doing is bad or evil. Nothing about that is intended to be harmful to us. Ultimately, it's all for good. We know from Joseph and how you treated him, we can trust you. So thank you for even more support for the faith that you've given us. Father, I pray that if any who've come in here have come in here this morning not yet believing in you, maybe curious, maybe interested, maybe they know some things from their past, but as far as a living faith, living every day, trusting you and following you and doing exactly what you say, that that has not been their life. Well, Father, I pray that you will use the truth that they've heard this morning to draw them to you through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that they will have seen enough of you today to say, well, he's worthy. He's worthy of my faith. He's worthy of my love. He's worthy of my submission. What does he want from me? And what you want is for them to kiss your son. Love your son. Trust in your son. Follow your son. Become disciples of your son. And I pray, Father, that that process has begun this morning. Whatever you do, we trust you. You are God. There is no other. And you are holy, holy, holy. And I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.